0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. If you have your Bibles, uh, join me in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians, the second chapter. Let me tell you about a couple of resources real quickly. I've had several people ask me about uh, getting a copy of the Baptist Faith and Message um, you can actually get a copy of that. It looks it's in a little booklet like this. You can get this at the Lifeway store up in Sherman, or any Lifeway store for that matter. Or uh, if you wanna, don't want to pay the few—I um, I don't remember how much these are—maybe a dollar, or something like that. You can actually download it for free off of the uh, SBC websites. I think it's sbc.net. The reason I would encourage you to do that is not because I would expect you to carry it around in your pocket all the time and that kind of thing. It's it really, what what you 'll find with each of the articles found in the Baptist faith and message are a number of different scripture references and we've tried to make it clear throughout the series that this document submits to scripture and is born out of scripture and I, I, I think you could see that for yourself uh, if you would take the time to study and to look at the different verses of scripture that are given uh, as it relates to each one of the uh, of the articles of the Baptist Faith and Message. So there's that. Another book that I would recommend this morning, in uh, light of where we're going this morning, in article number five, uh, called God's Purpose of Grace, is a book written by Norman Geisler. And this first came out in 1999. It's been reprinted and redone, I think now three different times. Uh, I would encourage you to pick up the third edition because there's some additional material in the back of this. Here's what it says it's called Chosen But Free, all right? And it's a balanced view of God's sovereignty and free will. Uh, And if you know anything about those two subjects or you're versed at all in Scripture, then you know that it is a a hotbed for debate uh, and one on which people uh, have sometimes very strong opinions. And so uh, I I come to the pulpit this morning uh, certainly with a sense of humility, uh, I hope and pray, uh, and uh, one that would simply say to you, I don't have it all figured out. I really don't. Um, but I do believe that God's Word has a lot to say on these subjects, and I think it's very important for us to look at them together. Uh, I want to remind you that we are in a sermon series called Hold Firm, getting a grip on the confession of our faith. We're studying the, the biblically-based doctrines which guide our faith and our practice, uh, and we believe are expressed or clarified for us in the Baptist faith and message. Now, the, the, the foundational text for this series is Titus chapter 1, verse number 9, The Apostle Paul writing there to uh, Titus, and he's giving them the qualifications for church leadership, and he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give sound instruction or or give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, So, what is it that we're holding firm to? Is it that we're necessarily holding firm to the Baptist faith and message? No, we're, we're holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that. We can give instruction in sound doctrine and to contradict those, or to rebuke those who contradict it. Doctrine literally means teaching, uh, instruction. So really when you think about it, all preaching that's biblical in nature, expository in nature, is doctrinal preaching. Uh, We are saying this is what we believe based upon the authority of the Word of God on any given subject. And so that's very important to remember. We've already looked at Article 1, that is the Scriptures. Uh, it's our belief that the Scriptures are God's inspired uh, in His completed revelation of Himself to humanity. God has sovereignly, providentially preserved His inerrant and infallible Word for us. It is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. What does the Word of God say? Article number two uh, we looked at was God, uh, theology proper. We believe that the one and only living and true God revealed in Scripture uh, is a trinity of three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet still one, a unity. Uh, God is a tri-unity. And then that article is further broken down as we looked at God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. In article three, we looked at man. Uh, What does God's Word say about us? Uh, Did we just happen by accident? Uh, No, we're created. We're created by God. We are image bearers of God. Not only that, but God desires to have relationship with us. And he has demonstrated that by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God came in the flesh, so that we might be reconciled to holy God. And so that was Article Three, Man. And then last week we looked at Article Four uh, called Salvation. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man, is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, Salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we're going to revisit those even again this morning. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That is a pivotal statement, a key statement to us who are Bible believing Christians. All right? That is the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, and in the pluralistic world in which we live, that says there are many roads that lead to God. They're all equally valid, all good. Uh, let's just all get along, okay? That kind of thing. Okay, I'm not against getting along and, and, and unity in, this, in the sense of, 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 of gospel faithfulness and all those things, but, uh, but those things can't all be true at the same time, okay? If for someone to say that is to say that they are not intellectually honest. Okay, Because all those different roads uh, do not say the same thing, or all those different ways. And so it's our belief as Bible-believing Christians that there is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And so then this morning, we are looking at Article 5. Article 5 is entitled, God's Purpose of Grace. And you'll notice that there are really two doctrines that are covered in Article 5. The first one is election, and the second one is Preservation. Okay, The perseverance of the saints, the security of the believer uh, is really what that is. And so I want you to notice those two uh, distinct paragraphs here in article number five. Let's look at it together. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies. Remember we saw those last week. It is consistent with the free agency of man. It comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. And then there's a second paragraph to Article 5 uh, that covers uh, perseverance. It says, "...all true believers endure to the end." Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. There is Article 5, God's purpose of grace. Now, I've asked you to turn already to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bibles, or if I didn't, I intended to. Ephesians chapter 2. You might also flip back to the left there to the Gospel of John chapter 10 verses 27 through 29. But Ephesians chapter 2, this is a text that you are probably familiar with. It's one that we uh, quote frequently from this pulpit, I know. Uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he says this, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our text here addresses both God's grace and man's faith in the matter of salvation. Paul affirms that no one is saved apart from the grace of God, and at the same time, he affirms that no one is saved apart from faith, a faith that is itself a gift from God. There are few issues that cause more debate than a discussion of the relationship between God's electing purpose of grace and the free will of man and his responsibility to exercise repentance and faith. It is a biblically and theologically complex issue. Uh, This is one of those subjects that uh, young seminarians will sit around for hours on end and debate and, and argue and... In between the debates over, you know, can God make a boulder so big he can't move it? You know, stuff like that. I mean, and, and I, I can't tell you how much time was spent uh, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, sitting around with guys who, you know, we kind of were thinking we were getting God all figured out. And we, we were really had some views on some of these things. Well, I'm just going to tell you, I don't have it all figured out. Some 30 years later, I still don't have it all figured out. Okay? I'm, I'm constantly studying and constantly striving to come to a better understanding of some of these truths and how they, they fit together. I will tell you that like virtually many of, of the key doctrines of Scripture, there are extremes. Okay? And as it relates to this issue of election and the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, you've got two different camps. Maybe you've heard it described this way. There are the Calvinists and the Arminians. Uh, there are those who emphasize the sovereignty of God o- over and above the free will of man. There are those who emphasize the free will of man over and above even the sovereignty of God. And in both of those camps, there are extreme views. And that's one of the things that, uh, that Norman Geisler kind of unpacks in this book that I uh, recommended earlier. So on, on one side of this whole thing, you, you've got those who, uh, who have such an extreme view of the sovereignty of God in this issue that, that they would essentially say that we are like pre-programmed robots, Okay, That's kind of a, a, an extreme view on, on that side of this argument. But then on the other hand, you've got those that have an extreme view on the free will of man's side, and they would basically say that, that, that God uh, he, he put this whole thing of salvation together, and he basically rolled it out in the form of an offer, uh, but then he has nothing to do whatsoever with who accepts or rejects that offer of salvation. Okay, Those are the extremes in these two different camps. All right? Now, I'm not suggesting that if you hold to one, that you can't somehow hold to the other or come to understand how they are congruent or how they, how they come together. And I hope that you will see that uh, this morning. But to be sure, uh, it, this is an area where there is a lot of debate. Okay, um, It is a complex issue. It's an issue that is wrapped in mystery and tension. And some people can't deal with that. Some people cannot deal with the fact that in Scripture, as we look at some of these key doctrines, there's a bit of tension uh, and because they can't, they can't deal with that tension, uh, then they just want to remove themselves from it, okay? Uh, there are a lot of people today who would classify themselves as agnostic, even atheists, who would say, well, I, I just couldn't make all those pieces fit together, and so I can't believe that. Well, we don't want to be in that place either, all right? So finding and maintaining a healthy balance is a challenge. Uh, but that is clearly what, what I believe is attempted here by article number five of our Baptist Faith and Message. Now, again, it says election... "...is the gracious purpose of God, according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners." And so again, you see there the four elements of salvation that we discussed last week in article number 4. And we see here that they all arise from God's purpose of grace in election. Election pulsates with the infinite grace of God. Now, I'm going to offer a word of caution here because if you are one who blatantly tries to deny that election is in the Bible, you don't understand Scripture. You just don't. And by the same token, if you're one who tries to blatantly deny the free will of man, you also do not understand Scripture. Okay, They are both there, very much there. Uh, And so we've got to come to a more clear understanding of these truths. God has a particular love for which rests on fallen humanity to bring them to salvation. Uh, we're told that if you look at Ephesians, if you just flip back a page over to Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what it says in verses 4 and 5 there. We'll just pick it up in verse 3. After Paul's greeting to the Ephesians, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then here's verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. "...that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." Okay, You'll also find, if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, "...whom He foreknew, that is, loved beforehand, He also predestined." Now, these are some words that make some feel uncomfortable. Maybe you're here this morning and you're already feeling your blood pressure going up a little bit. And you're just like, ah, man, I, you know, I've always been... Anything you know, that sounds like Calvinism or anything like that, man, that's anathema. And, but then you don't even understand that the other side is this thing called Arminianism. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And We're not going to dive off into all of that this morning. Uh, but we can't deny that there are, are some conflicting views on some of these things. And so we're going to look at that together. I do love the fact that our Baptist faith and message here calls God's saving choice gracious. I think that's important to remember. It's gracious because it operates for the good of sinners in spite of their infinite sinfulness. God's election cannot fail. He administers His decree all the way to the glorification of sinners and to the glory of His beloved Son. Election does not contradict the free will of man. I can't fully explain that, but it doesn't contradict the free will of man. When a person acts, he acts freely or exactly as he is disposed to act. So while dead in trespasses and sins, he is a slave to sin. He freely sins, and he sins freely. Election manifests God's sovereign goodness by displaying His mercy and His justice. And since election results in eternal praise to His glory, it is infinitely wise. W.A. Criswell, who was uh, for many years, uh, he was the legendary pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. He addressed the importance of the doctrine of election by saying this. We have a tendency to back away from the word predestination to hesitate before the word election, but not so with God, and not so with the Word of God. They are words much used. It is a revelation employed and it is a truth of God functional on which this earth stands and by which the kingdom of God abides forever. So the Word of God, as in all of these matters, needs to shape our understanding and that's what we desire today. It's not human reason, it's not sensibilities, it's not personal preferences. And, and man, if, as I look back over the course of my life and my, 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 my journey of faith, you might say, I, I look back and I go, how many opinions did I form and positions did I take? Not because they were biblical, but because they, 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 they lined up with my preference, you know, some things we choose to not believe about God because we just personally can't imagine a God like that. And we've got to be very careful in these areas. And so let's first understand election. Understanding election. What does the biblical term election even mean? The verb elect in Scripture, it's eklegomai in the Greek language, it means to choose one, uh, out for oneself. And if you're here this morning and you're a voting age and you've participated in an election, which I, I certainly hope that you have, then you understand this concept. Uh, you were presented uh, some options. Uh, in some cases only two, in other cases maybe more. But, but you chose one out of the, those choices. Okay, You, you uh, participated in an election. That, it's the same idea, same concept. The verb implies a selection of some out of a larger group. The New Testament frequently used the the adjective elect or chosen. It's a a little bit different word. It's eklektos. It it, it refers to God's people as the elect, the elect ones. We find that in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, and Colossians chapter 3, uh, Titus chapter 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. So scripture highlights three aspects of election. Okay? Number one, God graciously chose undeserving Israel to be his people. Okay, and we see that particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, and then Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, so we're talking about the nation of Israel as God's chosen or God's elect people. Okay, then Then secondly, God graciously chose individuals to serve in various roles. And again, we see that in in the Old Testament, even all the way into the New Testament. Uh, You've got various kings and different ones who were chosen. They were anointed. They were elected by God to uh, fill a a particular role. Um, As an example, Jesus himself described his choice of the Apostle Paul uh, to proclaim his name as election. Uh, There in Acts chapter 9, verse number 15. And so that was a particular role for which the Apostle Paul was chosen or, or elected. And then uh, the biblical concept of election describes God's choice, God's initiative, God's plan related to salvation. We just saw that here a moment ago in, in Ephesians chapter 1. You also find that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's something you've you, you got to understand. Biblical election is always Christocentric. Okay, it's always centered on Christ. One of the reasons that we, it's not just a, a catchy little thing that, that, that we say here often, we are biblically based, Christ-centered, and gospel-driven. Okay, The reason that we say that is because, as we've already studied, we believe that the Bible is our final authority, so we want to be biblically based in everything that we do. And then with that, we want to be Christ-centered, because we believe that Jesus Christ is the central figure of all of Scripture. Okay, we often say it this way. Many times, what we believe to be or see as concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, you, you consider the brazen serpent in the wilderness there of the Old Testament? That was a picture pointing to Christ upon the cross. All right, so uh, biblical election is Christocentric. Jesus is the elect one, He's the elect one. And the election of believers is always described as in Christ. Or through Christ. Okay, our text here in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith, faith in whom? Faith in Christ. That not, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, it's not of works. If it were, then, then we could boast. We could say, I pretty much deserve this. Look at, look at what I've done. Uh, no, that, that, that runs uh, counter to Scripture. Uh, Titus tells us, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it is always Christocentric. God elects in love and in the beloved. Now that's, a, that, that's crucial to a clear understanding of the doctrine of election. But let's talk now secondly about the implications of. Of election. Some would look at something like this and, and its complexities and the mystery and the tension associated with it and go, does it really matter? Who really cares? Do I really have to believe something about this? I mean, is, it, is this something that I really have to, to have? It does matter. And there are some strong implications of election. The doctrine of election should stir us to worship. To worship. Paul expressed thanksgiving for the election unto salvation of the Thessalonian believers. Peter quoted the Old Testament to demonstrate that as chosen or elect, as a chosen or elect race, we proclaim praise to God. Um, it's important to note that the New Testament brings together this doctrine of election and holiness. Okay, pulls it all together, and we just read that again a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 1 here. It's so it should move us to pursue the Christ-likeness for which God chose us. The New Testament also presents election as the foundation of our assurance and hope. And we're going to hopefully tie all this together here uh, in this article number 5. Now what truths are uh, about election are emphasized in this statement from, from the Baptist Faith and Message? I, I want to just... Highlight a few things here. The Baptist faith and message highlights the purposeful nature of election. Okay, God's election progresses toward a goal. And that goal includes, as we've already said, the regeneration, the justification, the sanctification, and the glorification of sinners. Okay, God doesn't do things just happenstance. Okay, God doesn't do things like just upon a whim, kind of like we do. And God's not like that. So the purposefulness of God indicates that our sovereign God initiated and chose a plan to reconcile sinners unto Himself. God ultimately purposed that believers be holy and blameless. The Baptist faith and message also correlates God's sovereignty and human free will. So by that I'm saying, these truths are not contradictory... Okay, don't think that you've got to choose a side here. Okay, well, if I choose the sovereignty of God, then that means I can't acknowledge the free will of man. Or if I choose the free will of man, then I have to, you know, I have to deny or reject the sovereignty of God. That's not the case. Okay? These truths are not contradictory, but they are compatible. Very important to remember that. The Baptist faith and message affirms the means of election. God's election encompasses. The means to realize his purposes. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, we're talking about missions and teaching and personal witness and a public proclamation of the gospel. Again, a very extreme view on the side of the sovereignty of God would say, because we're kind of pre programmed, okay, then there's really not even a need for, for, for missions. There's not a need to proclaim the gospel because ultimately the elect are going to get saved anyway. Okay, that, that is an extreme view on that side of, of, of the argument, we might say. Okay, it is our belief that the elect do not come to Christ apart from a response to the proclamation of the gospel. You've got to remember that. Romans chapter 9 cannot be separated from Romans chapter 10 and must also include Romans chapter 11. Now, what does it say in Romans chapter 11? I do want us to look back there. Romans chapter 11. This won't be up on the screen, so I hope that you've got a Bible close by. You can look along. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. He is talking about election in verse 28, 29, down through this section. But then he says this in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth... Of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? If you've ever thought, even for a split second, that you need to give God a piece of advice, you need to reject that thought immediately, okay? God doesn't, need your, God doesn't need you to serve him in an advisory capacity, okay? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, okay? Scripture makes it clear that God's not going to be a debtor to any of us. It's one of the, the reasons that we believe that salvation is, is all and totally, completely of God. Because if it was something that we could earn, then God would like owe us one. God doesn't owe us one. He doesn't owe us anything. I think what Paul is doing here is he's making it clear. This is something that as finite, very limited humans, we're not fully going to understand. It's like I told him in the early service this morning. I have yet to understand the female version of our species, much less God. I mean, I don't fully get all this. I I don't fully understand how it works, how it fits. Okay, okay. And so the Baptist faith and message then gives us a generic statement regarding election. And and I think that's important. There are three basic historic understandings of this doctrine of election that I believe can be affirmed in the Baptist faith and message. And I want to unpack those real quickly and kind of give you a frame of reference for this thing. Some affirm what is called a conditional election. That is, God foresees the faith of the believer and elects the believer based upon that. Okay, And those who hold to this view will take you to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I'm sure you've, you've heard that reference. There was a, uh, a former professor of Mississippi College who said, so God does not choose men because of their works, but because of their faith. Therefore, he must foresee their faith. Okay, um, Then there are some who affirm what is called an unconditional election. Unconditional election, that is, God's election, is not dependent on any condition that a human meets. I'll tell you that the founding faculty of, 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 uh, of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary held this view. Uh, this is clearly reflected in a, in a Baptist confession called the Abstract of Principles written in 1858. There was a W.T. Connor, a longtime professor at Southwestern Seminary, who held this view. Connor stated, "...election does not mean that God instituted a general plan of salvation and decreed that whosoever would be saved, and therefore uh, the man who willed to be saved is elected in that he brings himself within the scope of God's plan." He goes on to say, "...it means that God has decreed to bring some upon whom his heart has been eternally set, who are objects of his eternal love, to faith in Jesus as Savior." Okay, And then there are those who would affirm a corporate election. Okay, that is God elects a people and not individuals. Uh, Stanley Grenz, a former professor at Truett Theological Seminary, uh, stated election is fundamentally corporate. Therefore, it is bound with community. We are elected to community and for community. And so he says, being elect means being in Christ and hence participating in a corporate reality. Now, let me summarize all that. All right, I'm not trying to be Professor Mike this morning. Okay, let me summarize that. The doctrine of election proclaims that our salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. The doctrine of election proclaims that our salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. At the same time, I want to acknowledge, and, and, and we need to understand, that Baptists and certainly others differ on the details related to understanding election. However, we can unite on the connection between election and missions. Okay, so again, there's some extreme views. There's an extreme view over here that would say, and and they would spend quite a bit of their time going, well, I'm pretty certain that that person is not one of the elect. So I'm I'm like, that's a very extreme view. The truth is, no human being knows. Okay? (laughs) And so I'm going to continue to proclaim the gospel to anyone who will listen. Okay, And I'm going to continue to give to missions. And I'm going to continue to challenge you to give to missions. And we're going to continue to have commissioning services, Lord willing, to send families to Southeast Asia like the Esseries and others who proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. Now we've got five minutes to cover the perseverance of the saints. Let's go to John chapter 10 very quickly. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. This is a section of John's gospel where Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. And there's a, a bit of a break between verses 19 and 20. Jesus is again talking. He's walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon there. It tells us in verse number 23. But I want you to notice what he says in verses 27 through 29. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So like we did with election, let's then take some time to understand perseverance. Understanding perseverance. There's something I want to make really clear here, because this is where this doctrine is grossly misunderstood in a lot of contexts. The Baptist faith and message rejects, and I too, I would say I reject the thinking associated with the concept, once saved, always saved. That's the wording that some people choose to use to describe this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. They would describe it as once saved, always saved. And if, and if, and if you're one who believes in the eternal security of the believer, you've probably got friends who may maybe are on the other side of that issue, and they would say, well, what, what you Baptists think or believe is that a person can walk an aisle, and they can fill out a card, and they can pray a little prayer, or even get baptized, and then they can go out and live like the devil and still know that they're going to heaven. That, that is not what Scripture teaches. That is clearly not what Scripture teaches. In fact, I, 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 I don't use the terminology once saved, always saved. If I have to put it in, in terms even like that, I would say once truly saved, always truly saved. Okay, And so please understand, uh, that, that, that kind of terminology implies that a person can express faith in Christ and then have assurance of a heavenly destiny as they live like children of the devil. Nothing could be further from the truth of Scripture and the beauty of this doctrine. The Baptist faith and message affirms the assurance that a believer enjoys regarding final salvation. The believer's assurance, however, is not a specific prayer that you pray. Maybe you've heard or used the terminology, the sinner's prayer. And I'm not suggesting it's wrong to, to, to put it in those terms, if by that you mean it's a prayer of repentance and faith in Christ. Okay, but there's not a particular rote prayer that you have to repeat after someone in order to, It's also not just some religious experience that you may have had. Okay, I've talked to people, and I'll start a gospel conversation and I'll say, you know, do you have an idea where you're going to spend eternity? Something along those lines. And they may say, well, yeah, you know, I had this experience one time. I was at this camp in Colorado, and man, I was up on this mountain. And man, I was just like, I got this warm feeling all over, and it was amazing. Okay, okay. Um, that's, that's great. But if your testimony doesn't include anything about turning from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have a testimony okay you, you, you may have i 'm not doubting the validity of the experience that you may have had and that you, you i 'm not saying that you didn't have that warm feeling all over but but that's that's that 's not really what we 're talking about here okay so it, it it's not those things understand this the basis of a believer 's assurance is found in the keeping power of god okay it 's not in in you or me being righteous enough to ultimately be accepted by God. Because even on our best day, we can't do that. It's not possible. So I want you to to pay attention to this next quote. This is important. The doctrine of perseverance is not so much a statement about the perseverance of the saints, but rather the perseverance of the Savior with His saints. Look at it again. The doctrine of perseverance is not so much a statement about the perseverance of the saints, even though it's often called that, but rather the perseverance of the Savior with His saints. That's understanding perseverance. But what is the foundation for this? I, I mean, if we're talking about it all being uh, uh, the, the work that God does in preserving and, 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 and protecting it, where, where, where is that found? Well, our salvation is grounded in the action of the triune God on our behalf. So, so, so Christian assurance is Trinitarian, and we've really already looked at that as we've looked at the, at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack it real quickly. The strong biblical language of God's guarding or keeping power assures th- that believers will persevere. Paul says, God will render you consistent and unwavering until the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter described believers as those kept in a state of security through faith for the purpose of salvation. Jude closes with this amazing doxology to the one able to guard you as a sentinel and keep you from falling, and able to make you stand without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing. The believer never trusts in his own ability, but rather, a believer trusts in God's keeping activity. The promises of Jesus reassure the believer. Jesus claimed, everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out in John's Gospel, chapter 6. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose none of those who He has given me, but, uh, but should raise them up on the last day. John chapter 6 again. The New Testament contains the strongest promise of Jesus right here in the text that we just turned to a few moments ago in John chapter 10. And I give them everlasting life, and they will never perish in the, in the least unto the age. It's interesting that the Greek New Testament actually uses what is, amounts to a double negative here. They shall no never, <laughs> no never perish in the least unto the age. Now, if you're a student of the English language, then you know a double negative is considered bad grammar. Okay, and that's, that's really technically true, but it's great theology right here, okay? It is great theology. You shall know never uh, perish is what is being said in the Greek language. And then, of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit assures us. Remember two or three weeks ago when we looked at the Holy Spirit? We said that the Holy Spirit serves as our down payment, as God's earnest, that he will keep his promises. That's it right there. Um, remember, we, we, we discussed how the Holy Spirit is, uh, it fulfills the ministry of sealing. Remember what the seal would do? A seal indicated authenticity, a seal uh, indicated ownership, and a seal indicated protection. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry in us. That's why Scripture tells us it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And then finally, the nature of salvation itself gives assurance. Salvation is an act of God, not an action of man. So a lot of times I've asked the question to different individuals whom I, I love and respect. I've said, can you in any way save yourself? And i will be like, no, no, it's all, it's all of God. And I would go say, and I would say well, wait, wait. but then according to what you're telling me, though, is God is powerful enough to save you, but God is not powerful enough to keep you. You're saying that somehow you are responsible for keeping yourself saved, and then I, I naturally ask the question like, like how much do you have to sin in order to lose your salvation? I, I would really want to know if that's the position that I held, because I would be like, if if I, it's just one lustful thought while I'm walking through the mall in Frisco, is it right then that I've lost it? That I've lost it, or is it I, if I do that three or four times in a week? Or, is it, or do I have to have just like a willful, rebellious spirit against God, and then I've... I, I, you see where this leaves a person? Now, by the same token, those who, who hold to a differing view than mine would say, well, you know, again, but y'all's belief is that a person can make this profession of faith, and they just go out and live however they want. And we would say of that individual that they were likely never truly saved. And we would say that on the authority of Scripture. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. That doesn't mean we're at a place of sinless perfection. The Baptist faith and message says here that that through disobedience, through temptation, we can, we will sin. But but that's not going to be the pattern of our lives. We're not going to be comfortable with that. One preacher always says it this way. If every time the telephone of temptation rings, you pick it up, you're probably not saved. If every time the telephone of temptation rings, you pick it up, you are probably not saved. That's a hard statement to hear, I understand. But God's Word makes it clear that the pattern of our lives will be one that that leads us and moves us toward Christ-likeness. That's the indication that a person has truly been saved. I want to close with this quote from Vance Havner, great old country preacher. Vance Havner said this, The faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Hear it again. The faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. So the sign of perseverance is continuance in faith. We keep on because we are kept by God. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.